Hello everyone, I hope you're doing well and healthy. We always wanted to bring the ideas and argument to the forefront of soft robotics community and highlight many perspectives. That's why we started the soft robotics debate with the help of IEEE RAS and Soft Robotics Technical Community. In this audio, you're listening to the second soft robotics debate, which is about bridging the gap between soft robots and soft material. And the question is, should we discover new material functionality or we have to create architected compliance? As you may know, there's still a gap exists between cutting edge material and implemented soft robots. In this debate, we brought together experts in the field of soft material and soft robotics to discuss the necessary steps to bring more collaboration between these two fields. So, the panelists were trying to answer the question whether we have to focus on developing new functionalities of the soft material or we have to create optimized material to meet existing needs and allow easier rapid prototyping and technology transfer. So we apologize that we will not have a video format for the debate due to technical error. We will go on to post the audiogram in the official YouTube channel of IEEE RAS and uh, we apologize for that again and we are going to share the debate result 27 of the audience thought that we have to focus on smart material while four percent about architected compliance and 29 percent in gray zone and by the end of the debate the focusing on the smart material was 22 while architected compliance is still the same four percent and the gray zone was 42 percent and that's sure that uh, yeah, there is a, the audience saying that we have to focus on both of their techniques. So I'm curious to know from you guys, what do you think? Should we focus on both of them or one of them? It's it's up to you. Uh, what do you think? I would love to also to thank Hedy, Laura, and Gina, and Amy, and Casey, and Alexis, IEEE team, for the great support and making this debate possible. So as always, we would love to hear from you guys. And if you have any kind of feedback, good or bad, or any kind of contribution to make this debate serious uh, more better, I would love to hear from you. So yeah, I hope you enjoy listening to this debate and uh, thank you. Hello and uh, either good morning, good afternoon or evening, depending on where you are. Um, first, I'd like to start by thanking you all for coming to this second IEEE soft robotics debate. Um, and uh, of course, thank you to the organizing team, both within the community community and at IEEE, as well as our panelists. So the topic of this debate is bridging the gap between soft robots and soft materials, discovering new material functionalities versus creating architected compliance. I'd like to start just by introducing myself. Uh, my name is Gina Olson. I am a postdoctoral researcher uh, at the Soft Machine Labs that's headed by Carmel Magini at Carnegie Mellon University. So we have seven wonderful panelists who will have an opportunity to introduce themselves in a moment. Um, but just as a quick overview on the material functionality side, we have Professor Robert Shepard from Cornell University. Professor uh, Jonathan Rossiter from the Bristol Robotics Lab in the University of Bristol. Uh, Professor Shingo Meta from, uh, I hope I pronounced this correctly, the Shibuto Institute of Technology. Um, and then in our gray area between materials and structures, we have uh, Professor Bram Vanderbrunt 
and Dr. Ryan Treby. And then on the structures side, uh, or the architect and compliance, we have uh, Professor Hannah Stewart from Berkeley and Professor Jeffrey Lipton from the University of Washington. Um, so before we get uh, started with the main the main debate, just to, to kind of go over the goal here. Um, so today's debate really will try to address and discuss the, these two approaches within soft robotics. Uh, one approach concentrates on developing better soft materials with more functionality, um, materials that can, can self-heal, that can change their shape, um, uh, a number of other smart functionalities. And on the other side, we have architectic compliance, which focuses on using existing materials, some of which may not be materially soft, and instead patterning those materials into compliant structures to create the behavior that we need. So while the field has seen some combination of these two approaches, uh, they largely remain separate. And the goal of this debate is to, to discuss that gap um, when these two approaches are most appropriate and when they can be combined. Um, so we'll have the panelists introduce themselves uh, in a moment, um, and then we'll have four questions, each of which will have about 20 minutes. Um, two of the questions are actually based on, um, on audience questions that were submitted beforehand. Um, but before we get to the introductions, we'd just like to start with a brief poll. So I'm hoping that all the participants can see the poll in their uh, WebEx program. Right, so the goal of the poll here is just we'll do another poll at the end to compare whether the this debate has changed anyone's mind or um, viewpoint of these different topics. Okay, so it looks like the poll has ended. Um, so we, with that, we will um, move to the introductions. And so starting us off will be uh, Rob Shepard, and we'll go in an order of uh, material, gray zone, and then architect compliance, and then back around in order to get kind of a variety of viewpoints. So Rob, do you want to take it away? Yeah, hi, I'm Rob Shepard. Uh, I have a, a bachelor's and PhD in material science, and then did a postdoc in chemistry, uh, but primarily where I mostly built machines and uh, then continued to mechanical engineering at Cornell, where I'm a professor there. Um, and sort of, uh, yeah, building building soft machines using new materials, mostly mostly composites. Do you uh, do you want to share any of your initial viewpoints on this topic uh, and see, why <laughs> why you think it's a, a good a good approach? Or I think you're yeah. arguing for the materials, I believe. Yeah, I thought it would be uh, fair for everybody else if I didn't prepare for this meeting. So. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have you have about two minutes left. So, what do you think? You uh, you yeah, work so primarily the, no, in materials, no, I think. Yeah. So this is a okay. I was going to bring this point up later. The it, what I I think is uh, architected materials um, are really a macroscopic version of composites, which have somehow been termed materials anyway. So depending on your size scale, materials um, as we view them. As we, you know, we know we say silicone materials, uh, 
usually have nanoparticle fillers, which toughen them. But if you were, you know, 100 nanometers in size, you would say that's not a material, that's a composite or an architected composite. And um, so in that sense, nothing is really a material um, unless you're at the molecular level and nothing is really an architected composite. It's just a, or an architected material is just a material with air or whatever other filler you might say as the reinforcement forcing or modifying agent. So nothing else really exists except for materials and uh, any other word for it is just a misnomer. Okay, starting us off with a with a meta point there. Uh, it's Rob Shepard. Um, so next we will go to uh, to Bram. Yes, so I'm uh, Bram van der Borg, Professor of Robotics at the University of Brussels, and my group together with Professor Lefebvre counts about 50 researchers. In that work is very interdisciplinary. We founded robotics. So we grouped with other departments, uh, not only from the engineering fields, but also from the social, medical, and human science, in which we strongly work uh, together. And I'm also core lab manager in Flanders Mate, which is a research center for the Flemish manufacturing industry and that in flexible assembly. So our core research since uh, 95, so before I was there, is on variable impedance actuators for articulated soft robots and mostly for health and manufacturing. So we built cobalt, social robots, exoskeletons, and prostheses. And so we also have a spin-off called Axillus Bionics in uh, uh, lower knee prosthetics. And about seven years ago, we started with a vision to develop self-healing soft robots. Uh, so in that track, we mostly focus on continuum soft robots. And we had a, a very close collaboration from the very start with the materials group from our university. So in the first phase, we used what was already developed at the material side in those telefilling materials. But now we, of course, can also steer the materials developments based on the needs of our soft robots. So there is a very mutual collaboration, also very interdisciplinary, meaning that the outcomes of the materials field has an impact on the outcomes of the robotics field and vice versa. So I also don't believe that there is, will be a winning material in self-healing, and we just submitted a very extensive review paper on different self-healing materials and families in it, uh, their properties and how they influence the possibilities of the soft robots. And then, of course, those materials also require their own processing techniques, like we do 3D printing now, molding, etc. And then we add also extra functionality in them by adding magnetic particles or making them self-healing sensors by making uh, by adding conductive fillers. And then towards the applications, we do mainly grippers, so we can cut the fingers in two and then they can heal uh, together. And so now I'm coordinating two European projects, so called Shiro and Smart, which combine smart materials and then the soft robotics field. So we want to bring the bridge between those two fields in those European projects, which I think has many applications in robotics but also in uh, spillovers in many other fields. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Bram. So next we have Hannah. Hey, um, and I believe that I'm in the architecture group. Okay. That is correct. You okay. are in architected compliance. Great. Um, so yeah, I'm Hannah Stewart. I'm an assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley in mechanical engineering. 
I, um, I pretty much have been in mechanical engineering all the way through from my undergraduate education through graduate and now as a professor. Um, and I'm really interested in the design of end effectors or the support of human end effectors. So it's all about hands. Um, but if you're not a humanoid, it might not look exactly like a hand, but basically where the robot rubber meets the road. So um, this could include the design of new robot hands. Um, and so in my thesis, um, what a lot of what I focused on was sort of um, designing these compliant finger joints to get this really interesting sort of digressive spring stiffness and um, sort of digressive stiffness um, is something that is really convenient to do out of sort of how you're manipulating your materials. Um, and so I would say that, that really came from sort of the geometry and how we were implementing the soft materials and the springs in our mechanisms. Um, and then uh, more recently, what we're doing is actually getting a little bit into sort of contact mechanics and how, um, how do we model and design skin or the, the thing that's touching the world. And um, some of our, our more recent work um, looks at sort of the different ways that you get lubrication when you're contacting silicone skin with a slippery surface. So imagine a dishwashing robot. Um, and we had sort of some interesting conclusions around wanting to have really large patterns rather than only focusing on sort of micro patterns um, at that contact. Um, so we're, we're dealing with sort of this compliance and, and materials question at a larger scale. So the whole robot itself, and then also where, um, where the contact is happening. Um, you know, I kind of view materials as an awesome area where we can keep pushing the boundaries as to what materials can do. But ultimately, there's going to be some set of parameters that we're working with. If we ever want to go outside the bound of what our set of materials can do, um, an approach to do that is through architecture. How are we actually implementing it in our machine to get different moment arms, different mechanical advantage on that material as we pull on it? Um, or push on it. Um, and sort of the, the one thing that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of these soft materials is sort of their, their intermediate stage. So I think it's easy to think about, you know, materials once they're in their final form factor of your robot or device or whatever it is. Um, but what are the intermediate stages and how does that go into the manufacturing process and the actual realization of your mechanism can have really profound impacts on what you can do with it and how you can architecture it. Okay, thank you, Hannah. So we'll come back around now to the material functionality with Jonathan. Hi, everybody. I'm Jonathan Rossiter from the University of Bristol. I'm professor of robotics. My background actually is a bit varied. I started off an electrical engineer and then I went into computer science and then into engineering maths and artificial intelligence before seeing the light and coming to robots and specifically soft robots. Um, you know, in, in Bristol, we have a, a big group, five really cool uh, academics and uh, 50 plus researchers working in this area. And that means we, we cover the spectrum from materials development, which is what we're talking about today, through models and mechanisms to machines. You can call them the four M's, you know, materials, models, mechanisms, machines. It takes you across. You can do everything if you've got those. Um, but I think the fundamental bit is the materials. 
And I did I did write some spiel here that I can recite. So I'm just going to take some of the bits there to expand our discussions about how cool materials are and how architecture is great, but you need the materials. So, you know, the first thing is that there's a saying, you are what you eat, right? And and so the robot is what it's made from. Um, and the other one is garbage in, garbage out. So if you don't have really cool functional materials, you're not going to get a cool functional robot. So, of course, materials are, are, are really great because they are matter. That's what things are made up of, um, but they're incredibly complex. You'd think that you could just take some material and you combine it all up and you can make yourself a soft robot. And people have done that a lot, but that just gets us to robots that are like the robots we've got now. What I want to see is what are the robots we're going to see in 50, 100 years time? You know, the kind of thing that actually us amongst ourselves probably can't even imagine you know, there, there is concept that robots should be so small you can't see them. Soft robots can do that. So big you don't even realize you're in them or on them, like the size of a planet. Why not? Okay, so now to do that, you need the smart materials, you need the functionality, and then you need to build on it. And then we're going to come to really interesting notions of things like self-assembly. That's what nature uses to pull things together. It assembles things from molecules, atoms, particles, to structures and, and limbs and all sorts of other things. And then if you take another little bit of inspiration from nature for your materials, you think of guided design. And nature does it really well. It's got chemicals like RNA and DNA, and that guides the functionality of the materials that it creates. And with those, you can build up structures and viruses, well, we know all about viruses, viruses, bacteria, and, and even complete organisms. So maybe with the materials, you've got the potential in the future to move from what is a robot, a soft robot, to a soft organism. And I think oh. architecture design is brilliant, but you need that really cool stuff going in before you get the cool stuff out. Okay, thank you, Jonathan. So we'll now come back around to the gray zone with Ryan. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Ryan Truby. I'm a postdoc at MIT CSAIL. Uh, my undergraduate background is in biomedical engineering. I went on to material science and engineering and am now working in uh, robotics. Um, rather than talk about some of the work I've done, I thought I would open kind of these remarks with a quote, um, a quote that has singularly been formative for my own thinking and trajectory in soft robotics, but a quote that maybe could be instructive for some of our discussions today. Um, that quote is, I have to read it because I'll forget it. Robotics is the engineering discipline concerned with programming matter to perform work. Um, I came across that during my PhD uh, back in 2015, thanks to a Google Scholar alert pointing me to that definition in a now Professor Sam Burden's PhD thesis. And having that background without robotics, but you know, a biomedical engineer turned material scientist, um, I saw a lot of truth in that very abstract definition of robotics, um, but I also saw for the first time a meaningful, a meaningful connection between materials and robots. What was nice about it is you could actually supplement that twice with the word soft and get soft robotics is the engineering discipline concerned with programming soft matter to perform work. So in thinking about this discussion today, I kept coming back to that idea and recognizing that while that is still an abstract definition of soft robotics, it does point to not only the potential of what we could do, but also the glaring challenges that we have to address. Getting soft materials to do work is incredibly difficult. You know, I don't know if compliance alone helps us get to more able-bodied soft systems. 
Um, and we've seen a lot of interesting ways in which multifunctional materials have helped elevated the work capacity or the actuation capabilities of soft machines, things like dielectric materials, things like um, liquid crystalline materials. Programming those materials to do that work suggests we have imminent control challenges to address as well. And I'm still not sure if compliance is the end all be all to do that. It sounds like we're going to need to include some sort of perception in these systems, which again, requires new functionalities and multiple functionalities. So in short, I'm officially in this gray zone. I fully support you know, advances in architectic compliance to explore new innovations in soft robotics, but I also think we really need to lean in towards creating new types of functionalities materials, specifically multiple functionalities if we wanna see um, soft robots really reach their full potential. And I'll close there. Excellent, thank you, Ryan. So uh, next from Architected Compliance, we have Jeffrey Lipton. Thank you, Gina, and thank you to the entire IEEE team. It's an honor to be here amongst such distinguished researchers and friends. Uh, I did my undergrad in applied physics at Cornell, my PhD in mechanical engineering at Cornell, and uh, my postdoc at MIT in computer science and robotics. The title of my thesis was 3D printing food, foam, and forces, so that should kind of give you an idea of the perspective I'm coming from. Robotics is an intersectional field, right? It sits at the traditional intersection of computer science, electrical engineering, and mechanical engineering. And we're now in the process of bringing in material science into the fold. This is driven in large part by the explosion of additive manufacturing technologies and digital fabrication. Our ability to produce structures and forms, tooling and tools has never been greater. This ability to expand our design choices in robotics beyond the shape of plastics and metals and into the deformation behavior and internal patterning systems will give us hope to finding the fundamental answer to the question, who cares, right? I believe that the central answer has been exploring contact. Soft robotics, we've been building upon this from two previous choices that we were given from before, series elasticity and impedance control. With impedance control, we attempt to emulate springs and dampers with high frequency control loops. With series elasticity, we saw the benefits of selectively adding compliance, and now we're able to add compliance not just in the joint, but into the body as a whole. We're able to adapt to make contact with the world when we intend it and when we don't intend it and adapt gracefully. What the structures approach does lets us leverage the vast design space of 3D printing that has opened up and take advantage of the investment being made into additive by the aerospace, car, and footwear industries and build upon it. They can perfect material properties and durability, and we can bring them back into robotics by controlling structure. We can focus on generating forms and function through metamaterials to control deformation and material property changes. Most importantly of all, we can continue to build upon a century and a half of development in motor technology. Abandoning the motor is like abandoning the electron as the basis for computing. While there are edge cases where we might need to do something else, Trillions of dollars and lifetimes of work have gone into the development of motors and it should not be tossed away so lightly. By reaching for new material structures, specifically metamaterials, we can convert twists of motors into the changes of shape, properties, and performance and continue the evolution of existing robotics technology without attempting to build a new tree of life for robotics. Embrace the power of metamaterials. Let the power of motors flow through you and your work and your journey towards embracing structures will be complete. All right, well, thank you for that very powerful argument for architected compliance. Um, so last, but certainly not least, arguing for uh, the material functionality, we have um, 
Shingo. And if I have mispronounced your name, please do correct me. Um, thank you, Gina. Uh, my name is, this is Shingo Maeda from Tokyo, Japan. And uh, yeah, my background is applied physics, so I'm not a chemist. And when I was a student, I was in um, artificial intelligence laboratory. So I was interested in robotics and artificial intelligence. And, and also, I was interested in autonomous systems. So, and I started my project of the of soft robotics. Okay. And uh, basically, hard robots are very useful in factories, as you know. And they are extremely accurate, high speed. And look at the uh, humanoid robot, advanced mechatronic robot like humanoid robot contains extremely complex structure in hardware and software. And look at the inside of the robot. You can see many wiring designs, many mechanical components, and uh, in software, a very, very long programming. I think that new direction of a machine is how we overcome the complex structure. So, in industry, engineers cannot develop and inspect machines without computers nowadays. So we are now facing such complexity of machines. So I focused on soft functional materials, including um, chemical reactions for soft robotic designs. As you know, Soft functional material, materials show quite unique dynamics and uh, physical chemical properties. So if we use these functional materials in robotic design, of course, the design strategy to make robots is not limited by the strategy of conventional hard robots. So recently, many kinds of functional materials coupled with chemical reaction have been developed and uh, they show very attractive behaviors like self-healing, self-motion, functional surfaces through chemical reactions or physical interactions. I think, um, I believe soft functional materials might be able to be beyond silicon and metal in machines. So that's all. Okay, thank you. So, now that we have met all of our panelists, let's proceed to the first question. Um, so I think that we've heard heard points that kind of um, hint at this, but materials development is obviously critical to engineering. Um, without it, we wouldn't have most of the materials commonly used in engineering today. So I think we can all recognize its importance. I am curious if we all agree on what materials, smart or otherwise, are actually needed for softer compliant robots. Um, so the question here is to those in materials developments, what new materials do you think soft robotics needs? And to those that focus on architected compliance, what new materials would enable you to create new approaches or significantly improve on old approaches. This is kind of an open one, so uh, is there someone who'd like to go first? Okay, Bram. Yes, so I think, uh, first of all, 
Like you said, there is already a lot of materials that exist today, but I doubt if from the robotics field it is all known. And I think there we need a better collaboration. And I will give you an example from our lab. So we developed like 15 years ago, created pneumatic artificial muscles, which was a bit of different than the macadam muscle because our material doesn't uh, deform, only unfolds. And then we needed uh, fibers and a membrane and fit that in an aluminum end fitting. And then we used epoxy. Just we went to the shop, we bought epoxy, replaced it, and then the problem was that sometimes epoxy went into the fiber, creating a brittle fiber. And then after a few uh, uh, times folding it, it broke, so you had uh, gases and the muscle started to leak. And then a few years later, a master thesis student came in and his father was a professor in chemistry and he wanted to build very large muscles, retention, deployable structures used in architecture. And he said, you're just using the wrong epoxy. And in his lab, he made epoxy with uh, elastic properties that much better fitted the application than we went just to buy in the shop the regular uh, epoxy. So I think this transfer of knowledge is needed. On the other hand, I think also new materials is, are needed. And so when in Europe there was the idea of the flagship proposal and also the robotics field uh, entered with the Robocom initiative that we never uh, got it. Uh, and there I had to make a vision of, yeah, how research should evolve in activation. And I made three proposals and one is using serious parallel elastic activation. So in our muscles, we had not have one Actuator, we have thousands and a few for the eyelid, for example, and, and many for big muscles. And that became my ERC grant. Then I also uh, suggested self-healing materials, which is now the two European projects I uh, coordinate. And then the last one, I think is maybe a bit outside this, but in general is avoiding rare earth materials. So for example, in our electronics and sensors, we use disposium and an example gold. In our batteries, we use cobalt and, and children in Congo need to mine it. Uh, wars are fought for it. Our motors uh, use neodymium uh, and so on. So how can we produce uh, systems like from the materials we humans, plants and, and animals are built, which are not such a rare earth materials, and are much easier to, to bring in a sustainable life cycle. I think that will be very important if we want to have those mass robots in the future, that how we can recycle, how we can reuse materials in a very sustainable uh, way. So it's, of course, a bit more outside only soft robots, but I think also relevant for soft robots itself. Okay. Okay, that's interesting point. Um, I think I saw Jonathan as the second one with his hand up. Jumping in there, yeah, because I don't see lots of other people jumping just yet. So coming back to uh, Bram's point on the, the materials and the toxicity, I fully agree with that. You know, we need more biodegradable, um, recyclable materials, things that you can throw. And that changes the way you, which you think about robots. You can just throw them away, right? You don't have to collect them. You just throw them away on the streets. Yeah, okay. They might look a bit terrible for a while, but then they degrade to nothing. So it's very attractive. But coming back to the what materials you need, I think we need to split them into the two parts. Uh, which was the, from the question, which is we need structural materials and we need active materials. So by structural materials, I think we, we need things that are constantly stronger and more elastic or more resilient. And they have those kind of passive uh, engineering properties so that you can make your smaller, thinner, lighter, soft robot. But we also need those reactive functional materials. 
and I would tend to class those as transduction materials. What are we trying to do? We're trying to get energy from one form into another, and that's crucial for actuation, where we take some energy form, it could be chemical, electrical, magnetic, whatever you like, turn it into a mechanical reality, mechanical force. Or it could be the other way around, where we take some mechanical input and we turn it into electrical chemical response, which will then go into our computational system, which will also be in the materials. So that starts to hint at the kind of computational thing should be in the materials themselves. So transduction of energy, but also transduction of information. And if you can do all that, then you can make a soft robot, which doesn't have any of the explicit current silicon requirements, as in silicon chip requirements. Okay. Okay, so we have our approaching a little bit of our, our sense think act architecture uh, where we need a capable body and um, and sensing. I am I would like to hear though from architect compliance and I see that Jeff has his hand up, so go go to Jeff. Sure. So I, I think before we can really say what materials we need, we need to say what we're trying to do. Right? It needs to be driven from a problem statement of what's the thing you're trying to solve. So just generating new sensors, just generating new uh, actuating materials um, isn't necessarily good if we don't know exactly what's the problem. And for soft robotics, I think we've been exploring grasping as a really major approach. Uh, we've done a lot with locomotion, uh, but we really need to start thinking about how can we really expand the set of what we're capable of and then back down to last case scenario, how do we innovate new materials? Right, innovating new materials in this context should really be something that flows from the problem because no other materials there to solve that problem in that particular case. Um, and I think there are problems like that that exist. Right, so one thing we need to do is we need to kill off the steel cable. Right, the tent like we all like to focus on muscles and how great they are as an actuating platform, um, but really what we need to focus on is replacing the tendon. Right, the human tendon performs way better then the cable-driven robotic arms were able to produce because they're more durable, they last longer, right? The greatest example of a successful cable-driven robot arm is the Da Vinci surgical robots, and they have to be replaced every five times because the cables wear out. And so solving these kind of fundamental practical problems will have immediate impacts in robotics, immediate impacts in industry, and it's driven from the problem statement given to us from outside of robotics. Okay. Um, I wonder if we could hear from someone from the gray zone. Um, actually, I think Ryan might be a good one to talk to this uh, based on his opening statement. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I was thinking about this question and Jeff hits it, you know, right on the head. A lot of what we're talking about is what new materials do we need is so application specific. It is so system specific that I, I don't think there's a general answer towards what materials do we need. Um, in my own thinking, I like to think about ways in which, you know, we're not necessarily working on externally field driven materials for soft robots. Obviously, they have their place, but I think that, you know, when we think about where we can go with soft robotics, I think this also might speak to one of Jonathan's earlier points is we should be thinking about ways of transforming materials into more living machines, things that actually behave and act like living organisms. Um, if you want to think about creating new materials, and this comes back to another point that Jeff brought up, is you might not want to just think about an actuator on its own. You might not just want to think about new types of sensors on their own. I think what we have to do in, with respect to designing new materials is actually thinking about a co-design type of strategy where we're bringing together the necessary actuation, perception, control, and actuation capabilities together. 
Rob's work in this, you know, awesome soft fish that has a liquid catholite serving both as that energy source in some way, as well as a working fluid in hydraulic actuations is one really cool example there. We try to do this with fluidically integrated approaches. Um, it's really difficult trying to fluidically integrate sensing control, power, and actuation in one system. And so with that perspective in mind and, and <laughs> this very long-winded answer, I think that the future of soft robotics is going to be enabled, broadly speaking, across whatever materials or applications or systems you want to design are going to be enabled by material systems that can link up and interface back on an electrically mediated paradigm. If you can think about ways in which getting those electrons to talk between the power and the perception and the control and the actuation capabilities, you will hold the holy grail to advancing this field, replacing things like the tendons that Jeff suggests innovating on the types of systems that all of us have, have thought about for creating more living biologically inspired machines. So that's a good point. So we've heard a few of you bring up um, power and uh, information transfer. And since you were kind enough to call him out, Rob, you have, have some thoughts on this topic? <clears throat> yeah. Uh... I think you asked what for us what for the materials what what materials are needed, and um, I think clarification further clarification should be made about what is an architected material and what's a material, um, because gradients I think are really important and they're not being used. Tendon is uh, as people are pointing out is really great, but it would be a total failure in biological systems if you would have a gradient uh, into the bone. Um, and you could do that. that. That's not what we do right now. We have one material glued to or epoxied to another material, even if it is a good epoxy. Um, so we need more gradation in these connections. And one way to do that in material systems is with um, multi-phase materials like emulsions or colloidal suspensions. And then you have to be able to uh, have some amount of self-assembly or directed assembly at the sub-micron or, you know, absolutely sub-millimeter scale. So that's what I think we need. And, and that is sort of a, you know, when do you want to call it an architected material and when do you want to call it a material? The material composite community or the composites community has convinced everybody that composites are materials, but depending on the scale you're looking at it at, it isn't. And um, so I'm in the materials group here. And so, you know, it's a, composites are materials and, and architected materials are junk. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, controlling these gradients at these, uh, you know, at these molecular to um, colloidal length scales are, I think, the most, maybe to me, the most important thing we could be doing right now. And, and yeah, so that's, that's what I think we should be. That's the material, material control, the uh, uh, moderate control over self-assembly at, at, um, at that meso scale. Okay. So Hannah, I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts on this as someone who works with hands and, and, might have a call to use this kind of like tendon-like structure. Like, um, do, you, do you agree with Rob's viewpoint? Do you have a different viewpoint on that? No, um, I actually was was thinking about the exact same thing in terms of tendon. What, what's this analogy between a, a cable 
and then tendon in the body. And actually tendon in the body is sort of just a lot of times it's integrated into the muscle in a way that's um, it's like, a, so I'm in hands. So like uh, you can't have the front of the hand without the back of the hand and vice versa. It's like, you can't just get rid of one without getting rid of the other. Um, muscle and a tendon, I think needs to be an integrated system. It, it's hard to have it sort of acting on its own. Um, so what is the interface between all these different properties? I think, you know, in soft robots, we we think a lot about material properties changing over time. So that might be how we get like actuation or storage of energy in interesting ways, um, but also changing properties in this gradient fashion over uh, over space. So spatially changing it, I think, is really important. Um, if we think about the skin, you know, the front and back of the hand actually has really, really different skin um, for sensitivity purposes, for proprioception, for attraction, so that we don't tear the skin on our palm, but we have a lot of stretching to go over our knuckles on the back. And if you think about like where on your hand does that material change from palm skin to back of hand skin, it's it's not something you can easily identify. Um, I think that that gradient, I just, I completely agree. I think um, Rob said it very well. And structure and material has to go hand in hand. It's it's not, you know, um, it has to be considered together. So we haven't heard from, from Shingo yet, I believe. Um, okay, so. Um, I agree with some point about the interface of soft robotics. So already um, people talk about these things in this session. And uh, what I want to say is that, so for example, if we think about the elastomer-based actuators and the sensors, this is kind of rubber. So it, and uh, sometimes we can use uh, glue or adhesive tapes, it's easy to assemble. I'm talking about that from the point of view of making process and macroscopic scale. And if we think, when we think about the uh, hydrogels or wet system, and we have to take care of the um, interface between components. So for example, um, we have to think about the uh, physical chemical property of uh, functional materials. So, and uh, if we think about the uh, connection between electric or electric circuit and functional materials, so how do we combine these two different uh, components? And I think we need uh, more smooth adhesive technologies between two different properties. So, and yeah, so which means that we um, interface is, is very important among materials. So some already you are talking about this point in the biological things. It's quite difficult to, 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 to realize this kind of materials indeed. Of course, very small scale, sometimes there is some self-assembling method or uh, inspired from nature. But in macroscopic scale, we cannot use physical interactions 
So it's quite difficult. So yeah, that's all. Okay. Um, so we've heard, um, I think, if I'm kind of two themes here. We have these these gradients and interfaces. And so I wonder if I just just pick on Jonathan a little bit. Um, do you what's what's your thoughts on this? Is this something that you're looking at at the moment? Is this uh, is this something that you see in your grand view of material robotics? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a great challenge, and Rob articulates it really well. And this is something we we are looking at a lot. Um, in fact, somebody's just given us something like eight million dollars uh, to to look at this problem of uh, graded stiffness in inside the body and artificial tissues in that area. But I think this 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 thing that Rob raised and then Hannah talked about in in her example with the hand was a really good one. Okay, because and Shingo touched on it as well with regard to the self assembly. Because we always think as materials people, if I'm a materials person, that self-assembly is going to solve everything. But that wouldn't solve this problem, I don't think. So there's another system that's at work here, and that's that guided assembly, as I was talking about before, which is like the DNA, RNA, whatever you want to call it. So I think there's there's kind of two grounds, this architectured intelligence, which we could design as people, the kind of where self-assembly doesn't work. And then there's self-assembly, which kind of does work at a small scale, and we need to bridge that gap. And there's probably some notion of guided assembly, which isn't us by hand designing it, but getting a machine to do it. Maybe then you start to think about a robot, which will actually build the robot at that middle ground, that scale. Okay. I think for the sake of time, um, that we'll move on to the next question, but it happens to be, I think, a, a little related to some of the points that were brought up, particularly with thinking about the uh, transduction point that, that Jonathan brought up. Um, so our second question is, um, a common definition of a robot is a machine that can sense, think, and act. Um, so if we take a holistic view and assume that our ultimate goal here is to produce functional and useful soft robots, you know, what are the implications of these two approaches on all aspects of a robotic system? So particularly beyond the raw capability for action, how is control, either model-free or model-based, sensing, and how are behavioral selection algorithms aided or impeded by the creating these new soft materials or architected compliance. Okay. Well, we started with the material person. Actually, it was a gray area person last time. But um, as I recall, Jeff made a fairly strong uh, argument for this. So let's, let's start with Jeff. Sure. So let me uh, begin answering that question by answering another. Uh, I swear I'm not dodging. But Rob brought up this point, which is, what is a material? versus what is an architected material, what is a composite, right? So I want to give an example just for clarification's sake. This is a handed shearing oxetic. You twist it, it expands, right? It's made out of Teflon, but it could be made out of nylon. It could be made out of PT um, uh, polypropylene. All you need is the pattern structure, right? So the pattern is something fundamental that is decoupled from the substrate atoms it's made from, right? And it goes across scale. So this is what really something about architecture that is independent of the material itself and that the bringing together of it into a form is separable. And the architecture of that structure and how that structure will transform 
can be something studied in and of itself. So I think there is the potential for decoupling of that uh, question. And what this means for these soft robotic systems is high degrees of control, right? And this is true across both of our approaches, right? High degrees of freedom is everywhere. And what I think we're fundamentally doing is we're trading off the complexity of a model, if we wanted to model the whole thing, for how fast we have to solve it, right? By going soft and squishy, by going to these deformable substructures, we're really bringing down the frequency response of all of our materials. So you don't have to have these kilohertz control loops trying to do everything. And we can start thinking a little bit more like humans, which operate in the 10 to um, one kilohertz control range, right? The fastest drummer in the world only drums at one kilohertz. Right, that's how many beats per second they can, or actually no, beats per minute, right? So they're even slower than that. So we can go much slower with our processing and go much more in depth by going to these architected or compliant based material systems. And that's really what we're trying to explore. Okay, um, so let's uh, let's have someone from the material side. Uh, I saw Rob's hand up, but it seemed like maybe he wanted to continue the Go ahead. Go ahead. It was, it was <laughs> because, because if you if you take that perspective, then all we have to work with is the periodic table of elements. But silicon bonded to oxygen is the basis, you know, with methyl groups on the C's, carbons and hydrogens are the basis for silicone, which is what most of our stuff is made from. So is the is a siloxane molecule uh, an architected material? by uh, Jeff's definition. I think that it's um, it's more, it, you, you, you know, it's a scale issue and, and how we define what a material is, I think, is um, can you form it or can you pour it and can you mold it or do you have to um, assemble it from the top down? And uh, I think all the examples we've been given are uh, can can be there's only there's a, there's yeah I think mostly that's that's how you would separate it and the, for the for this question um, I think materials have a have a have a strong opportunity and I, and Jeff was saying this too um, it's the frequency response. Um, you can, uh, like machine learning works remarkably well in our field because higher order effects are dampened out. And so that's a really um, beneficial thing that we have, which is because of viscous dissipation, um, which is a material effect. Now, many times you don't want it because it, it, you know, lowers your efficiency a little bit. But if you can have a brain learn how to deal with these inefficiencies, probably you'll win overall. Um, in the interaction, and also uh, when the, the the damp the material composition can do pre-processing for the brain itself, that also reduces the computational complexity, and and that is all possible um, because of the viscoelastic nature of the materials that we're using in this field. Okay, so perhaps we could hear from Ah, excellent, Bram, someone from the gray area. Yes, so I think we need the control loops on the different areas. So what I think our hands, for example, are made of different materials from very strong or stiff materials, nails and, and bones to, to fat and, and all those kind of things. 
And I think still one of the unsolved problems is how we combine those different materials because often, yeah, at the interface, there are the stresses and they break. And so one of the advantages of, of our self-healing materials is not only that they self-heal, but the reversible bonds can connect materials with different chemistry in between. So we can make the polymers very short for stiff material. We can then long for uh, more elastic materials. We can uh, modify the gelation temperature uh, and so on. So if we combine them, and then we, we pull them, yeah, they will not break at the interface, like often when we combine materials with different uh, properties. But then, of course, we need to go a bit further and how we combine them. And for example, if we see to the bones, if we they had like this, like this, it's very rigid and like that, it's very soft. It's not due to the, it's not due to the materials, but the way the bones are made that when it's compared, it's more like this. And on the other side, we have more rolling structures. So like that, we can engineer by making a smart designs. And I think it goes further than, than the materials. Uh, also, embodied intelligence design, as I think they, they're called. And then I think often we, I see in literature, ah, because it's soft, it's safe, and so on. But I also don't think that's true. It's and need it, uh, but it's not sufficient. And for example, we built a, a, a lightweight arm with pneumatic muscles, so it was very lightweight, it was compliant, so we think it's safe. Uh, but yeah, due to programming uh, errors, it at motions, it made very violent motions. And if you would have smashed that, I would, would certainly break several bones in your face, coming from yeah, kind of soft uh, robot. So also the design, and in some cases we exploit that to have very explosive motions, for example, in our prosthesis of, for example, in jumping robots and so on. Uh, but we need to control also on the, uh, on the software level. So I think we need to sense things act from the materials in a smart design over the control loops, over sensors and actuators. So on the different levels and to combine it, yeah, that's of course very complex. And of course our body has millions of years of evolution, which our robots didn't yet have. Okay. So I'd like to hear from uh, Hannah from the Architect and Plans, because as I recall in your introduction, um, one of the points you made is that your work really is where the robotic rubber meets the road. Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean that uh, very literally um, in some ways. Um, but in terms of, you know, I think we're talking about humans a lot um, and of course, human skin is very sensitive and dexterous manipulation is a fundamental challenge because of the complexities and control and sensing um, as well as design. Um, but that's, I mean, one particular sort of human centric system. I think, um, you know, I also, I collaborate and work with Bob Bull a lot and he, he talks a lot about embodied intelligence and sort of the amazing mechanical properties of cockroaches, which are not known for their intelligence. Um, and, you know, they're able to crawl over many different obstacles with uh, a lot of embodied intelligence in their limbs. So um, I, I do kind of have this, um, there's this push and pull between how much do you rely on sort of just the material properties as they are, um, and then how much do you need to perceive and, and control what you're doing um, in parallel with that? Um, you know, I, I would say that um, 
I do think, and this is maybe just a parallel idea, um, that sort of the way I, I view these materials and how you can you can harness them for your embodied intelligence. Um, you know, I kind of view the material as as like you know a matrix with the full set of all properties of that material, and then when we put it into a machine or it goes into a machine, you know, whoever's doing that. Um, that is a down selection of sort of what properties we care about or want. Um, and part of that might be how well we can sense the world through it, um, but it might not necessarily be the case. It really just depends on the overall system. And, and I think that inherently is taking into account many different materials usually into it, sort of like everybody's been saying about different stiffness materials for different purposes. I'm sorry, I feel like that was a string of, of thoughts, so hopefully it's up to you guys. <laughs> yeah, there are a few points that uh, if we have time, I want to come back to, but um, first to just make sure everyone gets a chance to answer. Um, let's take the, someone from the Geo side, uh, Shingo. Um, okay, so um, for example, if we think about the uh, hydrogels, and the hydrogels basically contains the um, chemicals and, of course, water molecules, so many chemicals inside. And if we think about the making uh, total systems of machines, I think affinity of the materials are very important, not the choice of materials. So the combination is very important. Uh, one example in, from my research is that the hydrogel coupled with the chemical reaction network is very um, attractive to me because there is no battery. I mean, the reaction itself uh, energy. And also the gel produces autonomous uh, actuations and also when this reaction is very, very nonlinear system, not linear system. So nonlinear dynamics is very important to produce autonomous systems because when we apply external forces or external input to such a complex system, the chemical reaction is controlled by the external changes. So the gel coupled with chemical reaction include some controlling part. So without the control, but gel produces some autonomous or self-system with control, a very small control. And of course, difficult point is that the, the, to uh, understanding the such nonlinear dynamics is very difficult, but making process or, you know, just using is very easy. So yeah, I think the alternative situation might be branding actuator, sensors, energy, and a control system in one single com uh, materials. But yeah, it, this is ultimate situation, I, I think, using functional materials. Okay. Yeah, that's all. Thank you. Um, so let's go to Ryan and, um, and specify your uh, poke at a part of this question a little more. Um, so Ryan, you are in the gray area. Um, so if you know, if we're thinking about the system as a whole, 
not just what the material is, but what it takes to run the material, to control the material, and similarly for the architected compliance. Um, do you see any difference in, in these two approaches in, as a system? Totally. Um, I think Hannah brings up the good point of creating a system with true forms of embodied intelligence. There are two sides of intelligence in an, in, as an agent with embodied intelligence, right? There's this physical side of intelligence and there's this computational, or in the case of living machines, a kind of computational side of that intelligence. When I look at architect compliance versus new functional materials, you need a little bit of both. If you rely solely on architect compliance though, how far are you going to get with the only physically intelligent system that you're now asking it to purely sense, purely think, and purely act in a very physically intelligent way. You, I don't think you're going to get very far. Yes, and I'll talk about this probably in my closing remarks, but yes, you can explore some types of applications like soft robotic grasping in very well-controlled, very well-understood scenarios where you don't need that computation and a physically intelligent system alone is totally fine. But as soon as we want to think about higher level systems, if you want to think about more biologically inspired soft robots, you've got to have these new types of material functionalities coming in to help with perception, to help you think better, to help you to act better um, and to do you know, more efficient work. Um, and so in thinking about actual embodied intelligence, I think that's where you need a little bit of both. You need to rely on compliance to some extent, but you also have to push on those frontiers of new functional materials to actually create um, a meaningful system. Okay, thank you. So um, we have uh, have not heard from, from Jonathan yet. And so the kind of the way I'll phrase the question to you is you had talked about transduction earlier, right? You're, you're clearly a very strong proponent of materials. So you have these soft sensors, you have these soft actuators, you know, how how do you think about the rest of the robot, you know, uh, communicating information and particularly like and power delivery? Yeah, and, and control as well. Yeah, um, sure. I put my hand up and I said, I like materials, but I'm, I'm going to say now that, that soft materials are terrible. You know, they're beautiful and interesting, but they're appalling to control. And if you scale them up, you have levels of complexity and behavior emerging, which are just hideous. So that's when you turn to experts like Hannah and Jeff, who can do the architecture functionality to make a reality of a bigger system. And that's in this example of a hand that we have, that's exactly what we've got, right? We've got soft materials and the endoskeleton, which brings it all together totally. But I might turn around and say, yeah, but I could make, as Shingo was pointing out there, it could make a completely soft system, which has got actuators, sensors, and the kind of oscillations that Shingo develops in a, in a system and just let that run. And the thing is that that's going to work sometimes and it's not going to work other times, but I'm quite happy with that. Okay. And there's this phrase that people have been using recently that perfection is the enemy of the good. And I think some of us who are happy with soft Im imprecise systems should just embrace the fact that we can make them generally speaking, they're going to work, you know, 90%, 80% of the time, 10% of the time they fail, but I don't really care provided that they do what I want. Either it's cleaning chewing gum from the streets or it's helping helping me get out of a chair because I'm feeling a bit lazy or whatever. Um, so, and then that will include, as, as you're asking about Gina, the control systems and the energy and the energy and power is a real problem. Perhaps we'll talk about that a bit later. 
Well, as it happens, we have about a minute left in this, so I think I'll just press on you a little bit more. Power delivery. Uh, I, this is something I've struggled with. Um, what do you, you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I hate it. Um, if only we could solve the problem. So the human body, for you know, nature is brilliant at this because it gets power into remote places by having these structures, these mm -hmm. vasculated structures, and so on. They're inbuilt into the into the body. And if you make a material which is a bulk material and you need to get energy in and out, you face challenges with fundamental physical limitations of the rates of diffusion and the scale. And of course, scale is a real issue with some of these materials. So at the moment, we are a little bit limited in, in the power of our transduction systems, the power of our artificial muscles. You know, biological muscles are so good at getting the energy in and the waste products out of the muscles, and we haven't been able to do that. So if there's any area where development towards better control, it's in that kind of small scale, getting energy and control in and out, I think. Okay. This is, a, this is actually a really interesting point to me, but unfortunately, for the sake of time, we'll have to move on to the third question. And this question is actually um, derived from some pre-submitted audience questions, and I uh, pulled out some themes and created a broader question. Um, so the particular theme they're talking about is manufacturing challenges, uh, both during research efforts and in scaling to applying these systems to the real world. Um, so to each of you, to each approach, um, to what extent do manufacturing challenges limit your research? And what are those challenges? How have you overcome them? And to what extent do you see these challenges limiting the applications in the future? Um, so we started with uh, architect compliance last time. So let's start with someone from the materials this time or the gray area. Ryan. There's not a single paper that I've written that hasn't dealt with addressing some material manufacturing challenge. Um, whether we're trying to create sensorized soft robots, whether we're trying to create, you know, systems that work in more of an autonomous way, at the heart of every single thing we want to do in multifunctional material systems uh, requires you to innovate on the manufacturing front. Um, we've tried to overcome some of these challenges through a couple different approaches. One is, you know, if you've engineered a system and you need to bring some functionality in, what is a, an easy, simple way of, of trying to add new functionality? And we've done that through off-the-shelf materials and laser cutting and, and these types of things. Um, to the other extreme, we've explored, you know, with, with a lot of soft robotics, you have to innovate on how to bring multiple functional materials together across many link scales. And so created a number of, of hybrid um, additive manufacturing techniques, including a technique called embedded 3D printing that's, that's kind of been essential to all this. But yeah, I mean, I think that soft robotics and, and so many of these material systems that we're designing require you to persistently um, innovate on how you bring all of these materials together. And it's true for the compliant materials as well. How do we you know, architect the right form to get the desired functionality? Um, I think it's all very important. Jonathan, yes. Uh, Jonathan, we can't. Uh, you had your hand up, right, Jonathan? No, I was pointing because we couldn't hear you because your mic was muted and then my mic oh, was muted. Oh, apologies. Frustrating. Yes, so either uh, materials or uh, architecture compliance. Uh, anyone from those? Oh, okay, I'll pick on someone. Jeff, you do. Uh, origami structures, which have some very significant manufacturing challenges. Talk about I, your experience. 
in kind of the beginning, right? This is a lot of what's being driven is being driven by innovations in digital manufacturing, specifically 3D printing and leveraging other digital manufacturing tools like Ryan alluded to with laser cutting. Um, and really that's great. It is both a blessing and a curse, right? It's a blessing because you can make all these cool structures and you can pattern all these materials together and it's awesome. And it's a curse because all of the manufacturers lock down their material sets and I can't put my own little different goo. And I think Jonathan can relate to this quite well in some of his work where like you're printing something like, I just want to change the base compound that's going in there and the 3D printing manufacturer won't do it. So you have to build your own machine. So I think how locked down digital manufacturing equipment is, is something that kind of holds the entire field back, both in added manufacturing and in soft robotics. Um, and then something that's a little bit specific to me is that laser cutting tubes of polymers is terrible, right? So uh, trying to make these structures, um, you can use an off-the-shelf laser cutting system, but they're not really meant for high-precision work. It's hard to get ones that are, and all the ones meant for high-precision work are meant for metals and don't cut polymers. So building more open manufacturing tools that are more commonly shared and uh, building ones that are based on existing technologies that are a little bit more targeted towards our application soft robotics, I think will help push the research forward and allow us to collaborate more smoothly. Okay, so I think we have someone from the materials side. Okay, Rob. It's just addressing your question specifically. Um, a bleeding edge material, that's one we're on, right? <laughs> to, uh, to use, it would be DNA and protein. Um, you know, it would be great. All, all these architected materials could be self-assembled from material materials if they had the encoding on them to grow into these structures. But protein and DNA is very expensive. It's actually not as expensive as you might think, but still, too expensive to build, you know, a 10 kilogram robot out of self-assembling proteins that are designed to to grow into the organ organs of the robot, like whether that be the bone or the heart or the whatever. But it's the cost and availability. And um, but if that wasn't an issue, then there's a lot we could be doing with proteins in in our field. So we have a little more time in in, in your segment here. So um, what about current manufacturing challenges that you have? I, I struggle to believe you don't have some right now, Rob, or your biggest problems. Uh, yeah, that would be sub micron uh, control over uh, over the uh, you know ar architecture of that material. So which um, you know we could get if we could control the uh, the patterning of of colloids or or polymers within it. So, like the J-shaped stress strain curve is um, prevalent across tissues in in the biological world. That allows things to be soft and deformable, but also not damage um, under you know higher stresses than our current preferable choices of silicones or whatever, which have low you know, high strains with ultimate strengths, but, you know, if you pattern in buckled collagen, then uh, you can, when you stretch it, get much higher yield strengths. And so I would like to be able to 
make these composites with these um, stiff but buckled um, polymers in a soft matrix. Um, there are some chemical routes we've identified to do it. They're not easy. Um, and in the same vein, starting even earlier than that, but having control over the nanoparticulate fillers in the rubbers we choose for optical, electrical, magnetic uh, functionality, more done in a better way than simply mixing things together, like is, I think, the primarily how it's done in our field today, just kind of mixing it. Yeah, not, not carrying much control, having much control over the surface chemistry or dispersions that we're making. Okay. Um, so either Hannah or Bram to get a variety of viewpoints. Yes, so also my view is that processing techniques are very important. When we developed first a cell-filling material, we could only make sheets. And then, yeah, how you make hands out of it. So we had to use origami and then use the cell-filling property to seal the, the folds and so on. And like that, we could make a hand. But of course, it's a very... Uh, long process to build something and then of course 3d printing is much more advantageous but it took us a while to make filament and to control the process and because yeah our material can you cannot melt so traditional 3d printers won't work there so we had to go through a lot of processes in order to make it printable but i also don't think printing is a solution for everything for example for the covid we uh, one of our researchers adapted the decathlon snorkeling mask towards an emergency mask for caregivers. In Italy, there was also for uh, patients itself, but we developed it for, for uh, caregivers to use a filter and then as such protect them. And of course, in the beginning, we just used 3D printing. The, the problem is that we cannot guarantee the quality of 3D printing. Moreover, they need to be disinfected. So you need a higher temperature to disinfect, and then you don't know what comes out uh, afterwards because at such high temperatures, what happens with the material. So then we had to go to injection molding because one of the things is also for the uh, 3D printer, it takes two hours to print one piece and 10 seconds for injection molding with uh, medical graded uh, uh, ISO standards and so on. And, and so due to that new, well, due to injection molding, we could distribute uh, together with the help of Beacon and Atia as a Belgian insurance company, to the majority of the Belgian hospitals, those technology. So yeah, it's also on which scale you want to produce that certain technologies become more in favor than, than others. Um, moreover, yeah, for printing, you have a very rough material. Okay? So when you want to, to build uh, fruit picking robots, yeah, it can get contaminated. You have anisotropy in the material, the advantage of our materials that you avoid it. On the other hand, it's again very slow. So yeah, you need, to produce different uh, types of production techniques in order to go from materials to devices such as soft robots. Okay. I'd actually like to hear from, from Shingo. You have talked to, uh, in a number of the questions now about combining materials and making all soft, um, all soft components. And I'm curious what manufacturing challenges you have and to what extent they limit you. Um, okay, so in the past, I had some, some problem about uh, to improve the mechanical and uh, 
kinetics property of those materials. And uh, of course, uh, I was not chemist and uh, I, I couldn't design molecules. So, and I tried to uh, find another way to make, uh, to improve physical properties of soft materials. One method is to control the uh, preparation conditions, controlling the, for example, temperature or some other physical parameters. And then sometimes system generate the microphase separations or some, very, you know, um, in micro scale, we can control uh, micro scale structure. We can control by controlling the um, external environment. We sometimes can control the micro scale structure. And then, um, for example, Microphase separations inside soft materials uh, lead to the uh, uh, no 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 improve the mechanical properties sometimes. So okay, so what I want to say is that if people is not chemist, but we can control the uh, environment of preparation conditions, and then we can control the micro scale structure, and finally we can get the uh, nice mechanical and physical properties of soft materials. I think, uh, and then, yeah, this is one method of the manufacturing method. Of course, if we have uh, extremely nice 3D printings that can control the very, very small scale, like a molecule scales, of course it, it, it's nice, but uh, currently we don't have such a nice 3D printers. So one method is the controlling the uh, conditions of preparation method. That's all. Okay, thank you. So, um, just to have a variety of viewpoints, and I apologize, Jonathan, for having you go last. Uh, Hannah, um, 3D printing has been a theme. Is that something you use? Is it, what, what are your manufacturing challenges? Uh, so, um, I just want to say that Shingo, I think you were right on, you know, I think it would be fantastic um, as 3D printing technologies continue to evolve and get more, um, more and more sophisticated in different ways. It's going to be amazing. But today in practice, I don't um, rely too heavily on it. Uh, I think what, what we do um, is we view our robot as sort of a test bed. It has actuators, it has sensors, it has structure. And then ultimately, we're going to be testing likely some subcomponent or subsystem on it. Um, and so that's kind of how we limit the complexity of the manufacturing that we need to do. Um, we might be able to sort of manufacture the component, the soft component of interest, and then put it onto our test bed um, rather than creating the entire robot in one swing. Um, and I would also say that because of the the you know, the, the challenges that occur around adhering different materials or components, integrating things that you can't yet 3D print, like a microcontroller or, or things like that. Um, and the fact that on the surfaces of these soft materials, especially if they're storing a lot of energy, there's going to be a ton of strain. I've had um, low success rate trying to 3D print really high strain materials. Um, so we usually do casting. Um, and this is a nice way where you start with a, you know, a liquid and then you, you pour it into a mold or onto things and then you get the, the result. 
Um, and so a lot of the stuff we do is trial and error. Um, you know, we've actually recently been uh, casting silicone onto the uh, loop side of Velcro. It holds really well because silicone uh, is hard to bond to things in, in practice. So, um, yeah, we, we're steering away from 3D printing a lot just out of um, practicality, although that is, I think, a really exciting area for research. Okay, thank you. I, yes, I have sympathy for that, having done quite a lot of casting myself. Okay, so Jonathan. I could keep it, keep it short, couldn't I? I'm going to just say yes, because we, <laughs> we have real real problems. And yeah, um, so I think uh, we, we all of us have got ambitions and we kind of know what our robot should look like and what we're aiming for, but we can't get to it because of this manufacturing bottleneck. You know, Rob's Rob's fish is beautiful, and and our soft matter computers that that, that roll around, right? They're they're all great, but they're this. I don't know what how big Rob's is. This kind of size, but actually, you kind of want to make them this size and make them look beautiful and elegant. You, we can't at the moment. So I feel we're a little bit sometimes like we have the kind of color palette of Van Gogh. So you know, we should be able to paint beautiful pictures, but we're actually using our hands on the caves uh, somewhere in France. You know, that's kind of where we're at at the moment. Um, Unfortunately, we're the ones probably who are driving the need for these kind of spe maybe specialist, but maybe generalist manufacturing processes. So whenever we develop maybe a new material or something, we want to test it. The material development might take 20% of the time and 80% of the time is trying to turn it into something useful, usable, testable. Um, and I, I, I don't have an answer to this, but we need new methods to do this and we have to try it ourselves. Someone has to fund us to do it. Um, and then, of course, we have to work with those who are higher up the kind of technology readiness level to, to, to actually implement this. I feel for everybody. All right. Thank you very much. Um, okay, so with that, we'll move on to the last question. Um, and this question is really about, about bridging the gap. So um, a number of new materials uh, have been developed over the last decade and really longer than that. Um, but the kind of the system level soft robots still seem to primarily use conventional materials and techniques. So for instance, the multiple permutation of the quadruped walker, the growing robots, all of the octopus inspired robot arms. Um, so I'll ask this question two ways. Um, so to them and so to the uh, materials people, um, based on your experience, um, what do you think is stopping or slowing the incorporation of bleeding edge materials? And to the structures people, um, if you have used them, what what was that experience like? Was it beneficial? If there were any hindrances, what were that? Um, and then to all of you, what opportunities do you see for structures materials collaboration? Okay. So I have I have had Jonathan um, last twice in a row now. So I think I should offer him the opportunity to go first if he if he cares to. Oh, that's that's cruel. Um, <laughs> especially, especially this is the one where I've got fewest notes on. Um, right. So this this question is is about taking bleeding edge materials seems to crop up a bit and then turning them into reality. Okay. I mean, I I think we need to. Um, push more for this um, and we need to embrace any kind of method that will enable us to do that. And I think we're going to have to be adventurous. So this is where I'm thinking in terms of um, 
maybe we can't incorporate these materials at the moment because we can't fabricate with them. Maybe we can't um, stick them together. We talked a lot about adhesives today. Maybe we can't cut or scale them, but maybe we could have other approaches we, we were touching on earlier, like growing or self-assembly or controlled and so on, and then getting machines to, to build them. And the opportunities are huge here, but we have to spread this widely. We have to talk to the chemists, the, the material scientists, the surface engineers, the electrochemists, or whoever else, um, to try to bring it all together. Um, and then there is a potential to have our materials being more intelligent, not, not just when they're made, but, but when we're fabricating them, because that's a core part. And I think that's been touched on a little bit there. The intelligence and functionality is not just once you've made it, it's functional, but as you're using it, to be made, you know, as it's being made, as it's coming together, that's where some of the intelligence comes out. Does that does that touch on, on the question, Gina? Enough? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, so if we get someone from either the gray area or architected compliance to give their viewpoint, Bram. Yes. So EU Robotics made a nice thing, and it's like technology set limitations. So also our the material set limitations and the applications drive. And because there is a mismatch between the two, eh, that is where the research uh, should happen. Because if we don't do new research on new materials, we cannot push the boundaries on the limitations. Uh, and I think yeah, it's again a call for a very strong collaboration between the two. But such an interdisciplinary research is often very challenging, especially for PhD students, because such research ramps up much more slowly because they're educated in one of the two and they need to get to know the, the other field. Uh, so in the beginning, that usually slows down the research in the beginning because the researchers need to get to know yeah, both fields in order to take the strengths out of it and to advance uh, the, the multidisciplinary uh, field that comes uh, out of it. So usually for a, a PhD student, it's, it's a risk to do because it's initial research slows down, but I think at the boundary of those different fields, there is where the different true innovations still can, can happen and can accelerate. So afterwards, I think it, it uh, accelerates. So for a research group consisting of uh, a lot of PhD students and where there is also a longer view than only the few years that the PhD student has, and that I think it's beneficial. So we need to be aware of the, the the challenges of such interdisciplinary research, but I think it's strongly needed that material scientists and robotics persons get much more closely work together. That is that is a really interesting comment on the practicalities of working in our system. Um, I've seen Ryan's hand go up a few times here, so yeah, absolutely, Ryan. Yeah, since I mean I'm in the gray zone with Bram, it makes sense maybe for me to chime in because the word I wrote down on the Google document was interdisciplinarity is the challenge. Every single thing I couldn't agree with Bram more. Every single thing we're talking about speaks to the challenges of all of these highly interdisciplinary efforts. I can speak to that personally, having tried to print a bunch of things that roboticists would never physically ever think about using. Um, you know, one of the things I kind of wanted to throw in there of what might be slowing down the incorporation of all these ideas or the intersectionality of these ideas is that I think that. While we recognize that everything we're working on is very interdisciplinary, I don't think we do enough to, and I think even Brian mentioned this, enabling especially young researchers to kind of harness the opportunity to do truly interdisciplinary work. 
For example, if you go to an MRS conference, the ideas talked about soft robotics there are completely different than the ideas talked about in IEEE-related soft robotics conferences. And so if you are a young researcher in the field, I think one way of maybe helping expedite so many of these, these challenges we face is, is start by maybe just trying to cross-pollinate and explore, you know, not only presenting your work, but also learning about the other work going on in the other fields. Okay, so that's a really interesting viewpoint. Um, so we've heard from two people in the gray area, so we can go to either architect and compliance or materials. Okay, well, unfortunately, Rob happened to put a comment in that I saw in the chat, so we'll we'll go to him. Um, okay, well, uh, that comment, uh, I'm not going to talk about the comment, you can read it, but uh, the, in, this goes back to what I was saying in the prior question about um, DNA templating and, and protein self-assembly. The question is, why aren't bleeding edge materials being adopted? And that is because um, of cost and availability. When you can work only with gram quantities, you can't make the robots at the scale that everybody, at least in this group, is working at. So um, I, I would love to be able to buy uh, 10 kilograms of uh, DNA and like template it to what I want it to, to grow into, but I can't do that. So that's it. And then another one is, um, you know, tissue engineering. I would love to be able to work with insect muscle, um, but the uh, the the physical infrastructure required to do it is quite different than what I'm set up to do. Uh, I'm too old to do it, and I don't want to invest the uh, money in you know PhD lives that would be required to to do it. So in both cases, it's a, uh, well, I guess in one case, it's an, it's a expertise, like a d discipline experience that I don't have. And in the other case, it's money, but in both, both really comes down to money and time, I think. Okay. Yeah. Again, a, a repeating theme of the, the practicalities of academic life uh, and academic research. Um, so we have not yet heard from anyone in the architected compliance group. Anna, Jeff, you're both have relatively young labs, uh, just getting started with your with your recruitment of students. Yeah, um, I definitely think that um, you know, yeah, I, I think the practicality of of um, educating PhD students and um, sort of shepherding them through their own PhD definitely has its own um, challenges in that you want them to stay focused on, on a narrow enough topic that they can become a master in it um, versus trying to take on all topics at one time. Um, I think it would be just personally really fun um, if, if, let's say, a PhD student could then access the the equipment or resources of one of these labs that's actively developing the materials. I think sort of like like Rob is saying, um, there's so much infrastructure that's needed to do certain things. And then even in the development of materials, you know, it's not like, okay, you just pop out a material, it's going to be the same every single time. Um, it's, it's, not a, it's not a final product yet. So 
um, actually having a student who can access those resources and that knowledge base, it, it would almost have to be sort of a co-advising situation um, in, in terms of access to resources, um, access to just the materials that are being produced, um, and then also, um, you know, knowledge base. So I think it sounds super exciting, also super ambitious. Um, so <laughs> that's the that's the pleasure of working with uh, ambitious students. Thank you. Um, okay, so we'll go to uh, materials to get a variety of viewpoints here, and I think that we have Shingo left. Good. Um. Yeah, uh, I totally agree with uh, Jonathan, Graham, Anna. So collaboration is very, of course, important. And of course, from the point of view of the um, technical things, including manufacturing, of course, collaboration accelerates the research, of course, and everyone published nice papers here. And but at the first step, the important things is that uh, I think that uh, we have to share our philosophy to collaborators or with people at first. And this is very, for me, this is very, um, seems to be difficult to me. And it's up to cultures, I don't know, because I'm living in uh, Tokyo in Japan, and uh, maybe the culture is a bit totally different from you guys, and because our Society is a highly hierarchical and very solid. So I am not so solid and very flexible and soft. But the main, mainly, you, maybe you met some Japanese people in the conference and they're, you know, talking among Japanese people. It's very, very common things to me and less diversity. So, of course, there is very good point from this kind of uh, cultures, but the mixing collaborations and sharing philosophies highly depend on their, you know, communities and of course university. Now Japan is, uh, is going to changing our society system, but it's quite, yeah, you know, of course, a bit difficult. And, you know, and uh, yeah, what I want to say is that the first step, so the, how do we uh, share our philosophy to their people. So, and this is the uh, very difficult point to me, and I don't have a clear idea. But yeah, I, I don't know, this is not the answer, yeah. but just a comment. No, no, that's, um, that's a really interesting viewpoint on the, the human element of these collaborations. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, so I think that the last one we have is Jeff. I definitely agree with everyone's statements, right, about the challenges of interdisciplinary research, that we all need more money. Uh, we should all get a giant check for the $8 million like Jonathan did, uh, and then we'll be able to collaborate more easily. Um, and that there's need for cultural shifts inside of the academy and sometimes structurally in society to make interdisciplinary work work, because the problems we deal with are what program manager do I give it to? Right, the atomization of topic areas and funding agencies can be a challenge. Um, the need to atomize your results into whose thesis does it go into is often a very important challenge in interdisciplinary research. 
Um, but these, I think, are solvable, right? Money can flow, cultures can shift when we have truly compelling use cases, right? When we really need to do something and we can convince someone that we will save lives or transform the way we live and find that use case, we can move heaven and earth to make it happen. And so what we're really needing to make this interdisciplinary um, work happen more quickly are these use cases where we can show that we all need to be sitting in a room working together and adjusting to each other's cultural practices and lab techniques uh, because the end result is worth it. And with that viewpoint, right, finding those applications, I think our field will be better, our research will be better, and uh, we'll be stronger as a society. Well, that was a, a really beautiful statement to end on. So I think I'll, I'll end this segment there. I think that we have kind of a unified viewpoint of um, collaborations are, are essential and there are just a few barriers to overcome. Um, so with that, we'll do the closing statements followed by another poll. And then I'll just give a, a small a debate closing statement. Um, so as I recall, I said we would go in the reverse order for um, our closing statements. So Shingo, you are first. Okay, <laughs> I didn't expect uh, I'm fastest speaker. Oh, okay. So thank you for uh, giving to this nice, nice um, discussion. And I really uh, real, um, recognize that the collaboration is very important. And also this kind of discussion is, is very important to accelerate my philosophy to go ahead. Yeah, and yeah, I totally understand the uh, architected compliance um, merit and also the, of course, smart functional materials. And uh, maybe the coexisting between uh, two factors uh, seems to be very important to go ahead, I think, from this discussion today. Yeah, that's all. Okay, thank you. Um, Jeff. So um, I think we all have to recognize at some level, life is full of gray zones, but I wanna hopefully convince you over this uh, discussion and others that architecture designing structures, leveraging the existing manufacturing processes that are very mature, is a great way to achieve results in the immediacy that will have impact now. And that we need to really embrace these revolutions in manufacturing technologies and use them as the basis for building soft robotics. That uh, new materials and transducers are wonderful, but they're gonna have broad applications in society. And as roboticists, we should try to bring those things that are developed outside of robotics into it to do new things. And I think that's where we can have the most fruitful work. Okay, thank you. Um, Ryan. Uh, so first of all, um, thank you, Gina, for moderating an exciting discussion. Um, thank you to all the panelists for giving me a lot to think about after uh, our session today. Um, I think in closing, I'll bring up kind of another point that I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, again, if we think about creating soft robots, I think a lot of what we are trying to do is, as Hannah also points out a little bit, is create systems with that true form of embodied intelligence. Thinking about these two sides of intelligence, you know, a purely physical or a purely computational or cognitive side is something that we need to think about. Um, 
soft robots like biological machines, which inspire so much of what we do are material ones. And my concern with pursuing architectural compliance and isolation is that it's going to keep you so close to that physical side of intelligence that it's going to greatly limit at the end of the day what all you can actually do. If you only explore compliance as a way to think, sense, and act, you know, how easy are you going to actually be able to bridge back to that computational or cognitive side to do really meaningful tasks? And I can kind of allude back to the soft gripper example I talked about earlier is, you know, the new net grippers that we we all are familiar with, if they're doing some expected task like grabbing objects out of a bin or off an assembly line, that's okay that they don't have computation. Their intelligence is in fact embodied in their compliance, but as soon as we want to extend that to a different application, create more dexterous robots or other tasks, I think we're going to have to lean into new types of functional materials and specifically materials that bring multiple functionalities together, a la advances in manufacturing. Um, so with that, I guess I'll just again remind us that biology points to sort of the importance of bringing multiple functional materials together to help in everything from actuation, perception, control, and and more. Um, and I'm still somewhat in the gray zone, but very much always in favor of of trying to champion and pioneering uh, new types of multifunctional materials for soft robots. All right. Thank you very much, Ryan. Um, Jonathan. Thank you, Gina and everybody. This has been really exciting and I've learned a lot and I've got some notes. I'm going to go away and think about all this. But in closing, um, I'd like to say I, I really like architecture compliance um, and functionality. I think it's really important. With that, I could go and make a soft robot made out of diamond, right? I mean, you'd never think of doing that, but you can do that with architecture compliance. It's not a very sensible thing to do, right? I'd probably rather go back and make it out of rubbery material. So I go back to the materials. And I think that's where the hottest development is being made, making materials that are intelligent, not only in the way they're used, but also in the way they're manufactured. And Jeff made two really important points earlier, which I want to, one I agree with. One is that we should replace motors, right? Just get rid of the damn things. And that's where the cool materials come in. And the second one was, he says, we don't need another tree of life. Um, I think we do. I think we need a tree of life of these soft material systems, right? Why not having living materials that have got their own tree of life? There you go. That's my closing comment. Okay, you're all being very concise. Um, Hannah. Um, yeah, I have great points. Um, yeah, I also want to say thank you, everybody. This has been a real pleasure. Um, and, and thank you for Gina for um, moderating. Um, you know, I, I think this is a discussion about soft robots. Um, and as Ryan has repeated multiple times, that, that means compliance, you know, soft compliant materials. Um, you know, these materials have an entire set of other properties though. And I know that many of us have thought about these other properties beyond compliance, conductivity, heat transfer, um, all these different other, other elements. Um, and I think that that is um, where a lot of the really fun, exciting, elements start to come in is, is when we expand the realm of soft robots only from the softness of the materials we're using, but also to really consider all those other potential properties that contribute to the function of the robot. Um, and I think that uh, these materials are can be really, really amazing, um, but ultimately a bulk material is going to have some set of, of properties. And, and once again, I kind of see the role of architecture as to fill in when the material itself can't carry the function on its own. 
that architecture is what what translates or transmits. It's a transmission uh, for our forces and, and other um, physical interactions. Um, and so that that's kind of what I see as as the architecture. And um, I see a little bit of discussion about the diamond uh, robot, <laughs> and I think that's a great point that. Um, you know, architecture is the way that you you pull out um, unexpected behaviors from from materials that have been designed maybe for something else. And uh, so, yeah, thank you again. Excellent. Thank you, Hannah. Um, Bram. Yeah, also for my side, thank you for the nice discussion. I think so we can realize our dreams for combining smart materials and make more advanced soft robots. But I think we also need to buy a realistic plan to develop them and realize it's a very slow and very hard process and that we need to go step by step. Also benchmark reproducibility are very important aspects and that we need to avoid overselling because that can come back uh, as a boomerang in our face to show and be proud of what we do, but also show in which conditions and the limitations we still face in our research. Thank you, Bram. Rob. Yeah, so I am very convinced by everybody here and, um, you know, but I think that it's all necessary. The only thing I want to poke at is the definitions we're using and that uh, an architected material, I think, is a material um, and what we're in is an intermediate point in our evolution in manufacturing. 10,000 years from now, thermodynamics is still going to be thermodynamics, but we won't have fused deposition modeling printers. So um, it's we're able to do things now by architecting the materials, um, as I think we're defining it here. Uh, but 10,000 years from now, the material itself will create its own shape and form in the way we want it. So at the end of the day, it's all going to be materials, um, even though everything we're doing is useful. Okay, thank you, Rob, and uh, thank you to all the panelists. We will now pause for just a brief poll. And so this poll, I believe, is the same question again, and we'll just see how much of our audience has been swayed by your arguments. Okay. Do we get to see the results? Sorry. We'll just go on with the conclusion. Okay, so um, I would just like to uh, take this time first to thank the um, the IEEE organizing team, the organizers within the community, um, and of course, our wonderful panelists for this excellent discussion. Um, so we've heard a lot of really interesting points on both the materials development side and architected compliance. And while the debate uh, was going on, I took just a, a few notes on repeating themes and key ideas. Um, uh, one of the themes that came out that, that proved to be perhaps a, a little contentious is actually what is a material uh, and what is architected compliance. Um, and it's not clear that actually that there is a accepted definition for that. Um, the, the second point that came out that seemed to be a repeating theme among most of you actually was the importance of gradients and interfaces between hard and stiff materials, or even soft materials of, of different types and hardness. Um, you really can't have a soft robotics debate without talking about manufacturing challenges because of the importance of it to all of us. Um, and certainly, 
you each talked about some interesting manufacturing challenges, but I noticed that one of the themes is 3D printing is both a really powerful tool and something that actually still needs a lot more development to become useful to all of you. Um, we talked a little bit about the SenseThink-ACT architecture of robotics um, and how these two approaches um, play in with that. And one of the points that stuck out to me was that actually it's one of the key infrastructure requirements of a robot that is perhaps one of the most challenging, which is delivering power to different sections of the robot. So our last question was on um, collaborations and these interdisciplinary efforts so that we can combine new smart materials with architected compliance. And I think the most interesting point there was that actually while there are significant hard technical barriers, there are actually some very significant barriers that are not technical, that are either cultural or organizational um, in terms of how academic research is structured. So with that, I hope everyone in the audience found this debate as interesting and useful as I did. Um, and thank you all very much for attending.